0: No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com, that's A-R-C-A-T.com. Fundamentally,
1: the the biggest goal here is to provide housing for people who may not have housing otherwise, and also to repeat it and show that we can repeat it through many other sites throughout any urban environment. So that in and of itself is actually just really empowering to think about.
2: Energy performance and all the bells and whistles that are involved in the project are going to pay dividends down the road that everyone's going to benefit from. The, the residents who scraped together enough money to be able to afford these units are then going to have the benefit of you know, lower operating costs down the road, and they'll be able to sustain their ability to live in these units. This is going to be a project that's really set up to just thrive. And that's very exciting to me.
0: This is Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. My guests today are Sarah Kennedy, AIA Associate, and Michael Kale AIA Lead Associate Principal at SCB in Chicago, with offices also in San Fran, Boston, and Seattle. Sarah has her Bachelor of Architecture from Cal Poly and is licensed in California and Ontario. She has over 11 years of experience on a diverse range of projects, including residential and student housing projects. As a project manager, she is responsible for overseeing production phases, technical implementation, and acting as a liaison to the internal team, related consultants, and clients to ensure that projects are implemented on time and within budget. Michael has his Bachelor of Arts in Architectural Studies from University of Washington with minors in Urban Design and Planning and Environmental Science. Michael is licensed in California and is a senior designer with over 20 years of experience. He has a broad range of expertise, including residential, commercial office, mixed-use, and hospitality projects. His approach relies on fostering collaborative relationships to create design responses that are highly varied and stakeholder-focused, a sensitivity to context, dedication to sustainability, and passion for improving the quality of our built environment are common threads throughout his award-winning work. Recently, Michael has led the design and construction of high-rise residential projects in San Francisco, Oakland, Los Angeles, and Seattle. His expertise is in the design of complex mixed-use retail, residential, and branded hospitality projects with a focus on creating a great user experience while being profitable in the market. He works closely with clients and project team members to deliver projects on time and under budget. The project we are talking about today is the design of the visionary multifamily housing project, Woolsey Gardens in South Berkeley, aiming to offer 65 sustainable, permanently affordable condominiums and cooperative units for sale, as well as nonprofit commercial space. But before we get started, don't forget to take a look at the project photos and drawings as you listen along. You can click the link in our show notes or visit www.rcat.com podcast. Nestled in the heart of South Berkeley, the Wolsey Gardens stand as a testament to visionary design, environmental responsibility, and community empowerment. This revolutionary multifamily housing project is not just about erecting buildings. It's a commitment to a sustainable, inclusive future.
2: This is a very exciting project for us. Woolsey Gardens is striving to be a first of its kind building. We're pushing some important boundaries, but also trying to stay sort of within the lines where we can. As far as we know, this project plans to be the first lead platinum, mass timber, zero net energy, 100% affordable ownership, multifamily residential project, at least in California, maybe the first anywhere.
0: What sets Woolsey Gardens apart is its unwavering commitment to providing affordable housing solutions. The entire residential inventory is offered as permanently affordable units through ownership, creating a unique opportunity for displaced households to return, establish roots, and build equity.
2: Our client, Northern California Land Trust, has been very active nationwide in promoting and helping other land trusts get on their feet and provide similar, I guess, opportunities around the country. And so hopefully in the near future, more of us will hear about land trusts more commonly as more projects in that model come online.
0: A land trust is a special kind of legal organization that steps in to manage or own a property in accordance with the property owner's wishes. Think of it as a living trust that actively handles the property during the owner's lifetime. What makes each land trust unique is that its rules and operations are customized to meet the specific needs and preferences of the individual owner.
1: It is incredibly expensive to live in California, especially the Bay Area, and as we all know, housing is very difficult to come by for a lot of lot of folks. So this project is 100% permanently affordable housing units for low to moderate income households. And so this project is actually targeting those households at 80% AMI, which is area median income. And so each of the 65 units on the project are ownership units, and they're called limited equity cooperative units and limited equity condominiums. So that means actually each unit purchases a share of the project and commits to resell that share at a cost determined by a set formula. For instance, how long they'll own it depends on how how much it'll be sold for later down the line. And the units actually stay permanently affordable because of the community land trust model. So NCLT, our our client is Northern California Land Trust, and they actually retain the ground underneath the units. So through a 99 year or longer long-term ground lease between NCLT and the unit, it is actually required to remain affordable for future buyers which is really incredible because, as you mentioned, a typical affordable housing unit is for rent, and that building might be sold to a developer and, or sold to an owner, and those become $2 million houses, just like you said. It's a really important concept. And then the other piece of this that's really incredible is with the ownership of units, it also leads to um, a pathway to build generational wealth something that historically has been you know, very difficult for low income and moderate income and minority households. And with the ownership of this, these units, it also leads to community stability, which is another important driver of local economic development. One of NCLT's primary mission is to target those minority groups and who have been displaced and to provide them with an opportunity to return, to stay, and to build that equity.
0: Striving to be the first Type 4C mass timber residential project in California, Woolsey Gardens integrates sustainability to influence the layout and orientation of the entire structure.
2: On the exterior, well, the whole building, but this project is intended to be a showcase of technologies and living habits that support comfort and environmental performance at the same time. The building layout has been oriented to maximize opportunities for natural ventilation and natural lighting in the units and the common spaces. For the facade itself, window to wall ratios have been carefully coordinated so that we can have a great balance between optimized light and ventilation and minimizing heat gain on each individual facade. The most visually striking element is going to be the large PV array that sort of floats above the building and obviously that's going to provide electrical power, but it also shades the upper roofs and is an advertisement. It's a billboard for solar power. And so those things are the the big decisions, the big early decisions that make this building be able to perform. And after that, then we start talking about extra materials and details, and we're still in the design process. But for where we are, all the materials have been calibrated to minimize Embodied carbon and also maximize construction efficiency, minimize construction cost. So, by keeping all those, all the costs down, you know, labor, time, material, all that, keeping all that down, we can better afford to pay for some of the more whiz bang bells, bells and whistles that help us reach the zero net energy and some of the other goals. It's a sort of a form follows function design.
0: SCB considered every aspect of interior utilization, demonstrating that sustainable living can be both accessible and beautiful.
2: The first thing that you'll notice is that we're using a mass timber structure, and so you'll see a lot of exposed wood. There will be common spaces and, and uh, obviously individual units. Sarah mentioned earlier that the, the ownership is broken up into sort of more traditional dwelling units and then some sort of more efficient units that we're calling the sort of informally calling them the co-ops. And so the co-ops are efficiency units that are grouped around some shared common space. And so all of the, all of the owners who, who have those, they'll have their own little efficiency unit, right? Sort of a studio, small studio with their own bathroom and a very small kitchenette. And then There's four of those on a floor, 24 of them in total, and they share several sort of common living kitchen dining spaces, which have pretty big balconies for outdoor open space. And the combination of those efficiency units and the shared common space is going to help create like a a really strong sense of community. And uh, that's where the sort of the co-op nickname comes from. Beyond those, the the balance of the units, about forty or so of the other units, are more traditional, self-contained apartments, between studios, ones and two beds, and they're they're compact. There's no doubt about it. They're they're as efficient as we can make them to help you know keep costs down and carbon down and all those things, but they will feel much more recognizable, much closer to a sort of a market-rate unit. And those are arranged around shared corridors that are naturally ventilated. And you'll feel the passive nature of a lot of the systems in these common spaces. And you'll feel the absence of additional interior finish materials, you know, where where there's mass timber, that's what you're going to see.
1: So we've got a very tight program with trying to put as much dense housing in as possible. And so we, we really tried to pack as many units as possible with limited residential amenity space. We do have a second floor terrace and then an eighth level terrace. And then for the eighth level terrace, we tried to put a bunch of different uses in the small amenity space that we do. So for instance, we've got a laundry and community area all kind of together with a co-working space together. So it's really... Trying to foster community interaction and provide as much flex space for community uses as possible. I'll also jump quickly to the stair design and focusing you know, in mind of energy con- conservation and health and well being of the residents. The project's design encourages residents to offer the stairs over the elevator. So we've achieved this by incorporating natural daylight and a lot of design elements within the stairwell. So hopefully it's much more enjoyable for people to use the stairs and not use the
2: elevator. It's such a dense program, like Sarah mentioned, that we we can't afford to have any single-use space that's a part-time thing, right? All of the common spaces are designed to have people in them you know, constantly and enjoying them, having all the essential functions that people need, like laundry be available you know and not just in some dark basement room somewhere that it you know so everything we're doing is to help sort of build a sense of community especially b- because so many times the l- lower income housing options don't really offer that or, or, or don't seem to and of course not all of them but that's a that's sort of a trend that you see
0: to achieve ambitious sustainability goals the project incorporates an enhanced passive house, mechanical and facade system, a solar microgrid system, and a pioneering mass timber structural system.
2: Zero net energy is the number two goal, or goal 1B for this project. And so that has driven a lot of the decisions that we've made. Berkeley, like a lot of cities in California, has mandated that all new residential projects are all electric, and so we get to get rid of all the fossil fuels in the project. So no natural gas, no no diesel fuel for a generator, none of that. Everything's electric, which means it's going to be zero net energy coming from our solar panels. You know, we, we have a finite amount of energy that we can produce. You know, the site's only so big, number of panels, you know, is only so many. And so our energy use metrics have been very, very rigidly adhered to as we've been working through a bunch of these things. So all of the equipment has to be all electric and anything that is super energy intensive, we have to find an alternative to. So we have an advantage that we're, that we're able to you know really lean into passive options. We've paid care, uh, careful attention to building orientation for natural ventilation and natural light. We've tuned the window to wall ratio. There's shading on a lot of the windows and on the roofs. We did all that before we started thinking about equipment. We've been able to minimize the need for heating and cooling, and we've been able to maximize, or at least plan to maximize, internal control of each unit by the residents. We have operable windows. We have ceiling fans. We're keeping the energy allocations within the units so that any central system doesn't have to work very hard. So the, the main central system is going to be air-sourced heat pumps, and they're going to be up on the, on the roof, and there's going to be uh, sort of a minimal amount of air ducting that, that will bring fresh, filtered, conditioned air into the units. We do have times when it does get pretty cold or pretty hot, not many. We do have times when there's wildfires and you don't want to open your window, so so it's important that we, that we have the ability to get some of that uh, conditioned air, filtered conditioned air into the units. But it's not it's not doing the heavy lifting of of climate control. For water, we're doing lots of water efficient things, but one of the things that we're not doing. We're not doing any sort of gray water treatment, which you often hear about in lead platinum buildings. And the reason that that we can't do it is it's it's incredibly energy intensive. It blew our energy budgets right out of the water. So, so we're going to be smart. We're going to have you know drought tolerant vegetation and you know low water use fixtures everywhere. And of course, between the water systems and the energy systems, there's going to be a lot of education and incentivizing for the residents so that they operate the building as close to the way that it is intended as possible because that's that's how we're going to achieve the energy targets that, that have been set.
0: SCB conducted several analysis to target zero net energy goals. This led to the team developing a comprehensive demand reduction program.
1: Very, very beginning of the design we were the part engineers that we worked with understood and looked at the different consumption pieces and that all goes to the EUI which is the energy use intensity and that's really the the amount of energy used per square foot of the building annually. So it's essentially the metric to indicate the building's energy performance. So the EUI target is, is a big deal on this project and ZNE projects. So it was realized early on in the residential the residential plug loads or phantom loads, which is essentially the load that electronic draws from just being plugged into the wall, even if it's not unused. So those were actually going to be the biggest contributor to the expected overall consumption of each household. And so this is where the Comprehensive Demand Reduction Program comes in. It is a way to work with the residents and the non-profit commercial tenants that are on the ground floor to meet the ZNE goals. So this is done with NCLT by regular workshop, or will be done with NCLT by with regular workshops and trainings for residents and tenants, real-time feedback for residents to see their energy use. So the idea is to have a tablet or some type of screen in in their unit so they can actually see the interactive graphic of, okay, so I plug this electronic in or I leave the lights on and my energy use comes up. So this real-time feedback is actually incredibly important for, for lowering energy consumption. NCLT will also set up financial incentives and disincentive programs to reward moderate energy consumption and discourage excessive consumptions of energy.
0: The project encourages residents to adopt a buy-in mentality to combat climate change and form a sense of community.
1: The residents of this building are going to be buying into this lifestyle in some ways. They know that this is a zero-net energy building, or they will know that this is a zero-net energy building, and, and it's going to be made very clear this is what we're trying to do to affect climate change and and help your utility bills too all of the things so that it's not like you're just assigned a unit and you have to cut down your energy because landlord says so it's it's really a buy in of the mentality which i think is important to know too
2: yeah and and the the thing is being designed so that you have individual controllability and customizability and you didn't just buy a house that's got you know an oil furnace and all you can do is on and off I mean, there will be lots of levers that each person can can pull to get to the, their comfort level.
0: One of the most prominent components of the building is the PV array and the solar microgrid. Bringing this microgrid to reality proved to be quite a challenge.
1: We pushed and pulled with how many panels we had to have with our wonderful engineers, PAE. We had a lot of coordination back and forth of how we can extend the PV array as much as possible over the property line, actually, in, in two of the directions that we could, and then also structurally, how much we can extend the PV array just from a cantilever perspective. So we're we're really maxing out the PV space on the roof. It's a it's a huge canopy. It's really a, a highlight of sustainability on the the building, as Mike talked about in the exterior. But I want to backtrack a little bit to what the solar microgrid system just. Is. So it's really just a small scale energy con- system that consists of the solar panels. And then we also have batteries and other equipment that is used to generate and store the electricity. So the batteries are really taking all of the energy and storing it for when we need to use it in the future. And so that whole system essentially makes it the whole building, ZNE or the zero net energy. What's really unique about this is it allows actually the building to not draw from the grid at all during peak demand hours. So that's 4 to 9 p.m. daily. And it's actually sized for renewable driven backup powers. So we've got these three tiers of energy loads. And you can think of tier one as like your emergency loads, like egress lighting. And they will actually, those critical loads will always be able to be provided even in the event of a grid outage, such as a severe wildfire, which unfortunately is, is quite a reality nowadays. So that is kind of this notion of resili- resiliency also tied to the solar microgrid. It's pretty amazing when you think about
2: it. And it's not like this project is not connected to the grid. Right. It is, you know, sometimes these, these terms can, can be misleading. It's zero net energy on an annual basis. So on a foggy day, this project is drawing from the grid, even though we're in Berkeley, not San Francisco, so the weather's a little bit better. But over the course of the year, the panels will have generated enough to make up for any power that we've taken from the grid. And in, in, when the sun's shining, we'll get back to the grid, except, of course, for the, for the times when we're, when we're not allowed to draw, the 4 to 9 p.m., which, of course, is when... You know, you want to avoid having to fire up that extra coal power plant because everybody's coming home and turning on their TVs and ovens. So zero net energy annually. Mm -hmm. So it should be Z N E A. A.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and there's an extensive amount of analysis of winter months, we're not going to get as much energy. Summer months, we're going to get a lot more. And so exactly that balance of, of the over the year annual consumption and production.
0: As Sarah and Michael have mentioned, mass timber plays a huge role in the construction and identity of the building. Exposing much of the mass timber structure adds a natural and warm biophilic design aesthetic to the development.
2: Mass timber is is a fantastic structural option for buildings of, you know, sort of low to medium size, the the IBC and and by corporation, the California Building Code has made strides recently to make it easier to do larger and larger buildings in mass timber. And so going back to one of our many points above, replicability of this project is really important. So this is one of the areas where we're, we're not trying to be incredibly innovative. We're trying to use a system that's already codified, which is the sort of type 4C mass timber structural system. And what that means is we're using glue lamb columns and beams and cross laminated timber slabs for the floors. So the mass part of mass timber means that there is sort of more wood than is really needed for for the given structural load. And that extra sort of material means that it's inherently fire resistive. So the column can get, you know, it can get burned a little bit. It can get some char on it and it's fine. And so then that, that allows for us to not have to wrap it all in extra drywall and do all kinds of other things so we can have This beautiful exposed material that's the structural system, but also the interior finish. In the type 4C, building code type 4C construction that we're using, we're allowed to go up to 85 feet tall in in California. And that's the height of the building. It's a very convenient building height because it allows us to be just below the trigger for high rise, which obviously comes with a lot more expense and would, would really... Cause a lot of problems for our energy use and all kinds of other things because there's more things you have to do in high rise. So, so it's pretty convenient. We get the 85 foot building or not a high rise, and we get the beautiful naturally fire resistant uh, structure. These glue lamp columns, beams, and CLT panels, they're available in a bunch of places, a bunch of forest product manufacturers in North America and worldwide. And we're seeing more and more uh, of them come online and, and be very cost competitive. You know, every year it gets, it gets uh, uh, more competitive and more feasible to do projects at this scale out of mass timber as opposed to, you know, very carbon intensive concrete or steel. Best part is, you know, if you're, if you're getting the stuff from a manufacturer who, you know, is, is a, is a good steward of forests, we're sequestering carbon, right? We're we're replanting the trees and then sequestering the carbon in the structure.
1: Yeah. So we've done a lot of life cycle carbon analyses through a lot of the different parts of the building and, and iteratively in the design process, we've done quite a lot. But one thing that we did specifically with mass timber was look at the body carbon first, our mass timber structure. And then we actually built In in Revit, which is a building information model, for those of you who are not familiar with it, uh, we actually built what the concrete structure would be of our building. And we compared it to see what the embodied carbon would be versus the the mass timber and the the concrete. And actually, the mass timber provided a 32% reduction in global warming potential from the timber structure compared to the baseline of concrete structure, which is pretty significant. And in addition to reducing carbon emissions, the use of mass timber products also contributes to carbon sequestration, carbon storage. So the Wolsey Garden Project is actually expected to store nearly 810 tons of carbon over the building's lifespan. So for those of you who are not engineers and know what that means, it's actually the amount that is equivalent to the emissions of 102 homes energy use for an entire year. So that's quite significant.
0: The project emerged victorious in the 2023 Softwood Lumber Board's Mass Timber Competition, Building to Net Zero Carbon. This prestigious honor underscores Woolsey Gardens' dedication to innovation in construction and pushing the boundaries of design and engineering.
1: Yeah, it was a huge honor to win this award. Uh, So the Woolsey Gardens project was one of five selected winners of the competition. Competition is funded by the Softwood Lumber Board and the USDA Forest Services, and it's really all about showcasing and expanding the use of mass timber in the United States. So with the sense of replicability, we hope to use this award as well as hopefully lots of others uh, to showcase how the project can be truly replicable.
0: At its core, Woolsey Gardens is more than a collection of 65 condominiums and cooperative units. It's a symbol of resilience and hope. But manifesting this groundbreaking building comes with challenges and vital lessons learned along the way.
2: Patience. Each of the big headline things that we're doing is complicated, but you know, not not that insurmountable doing all of them together in what we're calling a first of first of its kind project, like that's its own challenge because there are so many stakeholders involved. We have the the you know future residents to think about. We, we have the the developer and their needs. We have tenants, you know, commercial tenants that are that are going to be sort of like minded, mission oriented, community focused groups. We have the city of Berkeley and and you know the the building department, the fire department, and the, you know public works and and all of these stakeholders that that all have to buy in and. Help us bring this project to fruition. Now, all of these groups—they they all think it's a great project. They all want it to happen, but you know, they all—they all have their own, you know, mandates and priorities and perspectives. And so sometimes progress can feel very slow in getting everybody on the same page. Not because they don't want to be on the same page, but it just—it's a challenge, and it more so than in some of our past projects that maybe didn't have as many of these things happening all at once. So, so patience and, you know, perspective, you know, keeping your eye on the, on the big prize, I think is the most valuable lesson that I've learned on this one to date.
1: I couldn't agree more. I would also add to that, utilizing your resources. We've got an incredible consultant team who are so knowledgeable and as architects, you know, we need to know a little bit about everything. And so Finding all of the consultants that know all of the amazing knowledge with these types of buildings and coming together and doing all of it in one building, there's a lot of people who need to contribute to the conversation. So realizing that and and utilizing and communicating, I think, is such a good lesson to, to remember.
0: Given the vast scope and ambition of this building, I asked Sarah and Michael if they could hone in on what their favorite aspects of the project were.
1: The design team and the ownership group. It is very rare to have such a cohesive, it's not very rare. I I would say it's enlightening to have such a cohesive, really intelligent group of of consultants. And then I need to have a, a huge shout out to NCLT, the ownership. They are Really visionary and this kind of project doesn't exist without a, an incredibly visionary and hardworking group of owners. So I, I think the design team and the owner team has to be my favorite part of this. And obviously as a project manager, that's who I'm working with every day. But really it's, it's a specific group of people that all are heading towards the goal of not only this highly sustainable building, which is just the right thing to do, but fundamentally the the biggest goal here is to provide housing for for how, for people who may not have housing otherwise, and also to repeat it and show that we can repeat it through many other sites throughout any urban environment. So that in and of itself is actually just really empowering to think about. So I, I think we're getting there. So it's, uh, it, it's exciting, very exciting.
2: The idea that this land trust model is one that means that NCLT is involved and supporting this housing project and this community in perpetuity. It's you didn't just build some units, sell them at low cost, and walk away. And there's nothing wrong with doing that, but that it's, this is very exciting because it means that the Energy performance and all the bells and whistles that are involved in the project are going to pay dividends down the road that everyone's going to benefit from. The the residents who scraped together enough money to be able to afford these units are then going to have the benefit of you know, lower operating costs down the road, and they'll be able to sustain their ability to live in these units and with the support of NCLT, with the sort of education about how the building works and and supporting community building. This is gonna be a project that's really set up to just thrive and that's very exciting to me.
0: Woolsey Gardens challenges the perception that sustainability comes at a high cost. It is a living example that affordable living spaces can also be a harmonious blend of aesthetics and environmental responsibility. Before we close out this episode, I always try to gain some additional insight from our guests about the greater industry. I was curious what advice Sarah and Michael would give to someone else working on a project with this level of sustainability features.
2: Sometimes architects have a hard time listening to, you know, other people's ideas on design. Listen to your consultants, you know, they, they are, they they know their piece and you're not going to achieve your goals unless unless you let them give you targets. Make sure that you're that you're not just uh, you know giving lip service to that. Of course, not that any architect would do that, but listen to your consultants. Have patience. Enjoy the the process. It can feel like your Sisyphus sometimes, but embrace that and you know look forward to achieving the goal.
1: Try and consider all of the pieces that are important. And again you're not going to get everything. You've got to really think hard about what you're designing and why you're designing it. And truly analyzing that and critical thinking about that is I think sometimes easier said than done. So if you can really step back and understand, okay, what are we trying to get to here? Yes, this might be something that we want, but we can't achieve it because we want something else. It's a hard lesson to learn, but I think that would be a good piece of advice to give starting out
0: i really enjoyed this conversation with sarah and michael i hope this episode sparks a new idea helps you solve a problem that you've been working through or inspires the mark that you want to leave on this world on your path to world domination
1: so i believe housing is a human right and housing i've really committed to be a, a multi-family housing architect I think the building industry has a long way to go and the housing industry has a long way to go, but projects like this and hopefully a lot of other future projects being sustainable and mindful and inclusive of communities is the most beneficial thing that I have been able to dedicate my career to. And so if I can build this project and hopefully build more and provide units for people who who need them, houses for people who need them over their head and, and, and contribute to sustainability, then I will feel like I gave something back.
2: Set audacious goals and keep pushing for what you know is the right thing to do. And most importantly, don't regret trying. You're not going to win them all. You're not going to get, you know, every, every performance target or accolade, but don't, don't regret that you tried.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. For over 30 years, Rcat has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try Rcat and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit rcat.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.